Good morning. I had down here a brief prayer, but everybody's off the stage, so I don't know that I need to pray for that. But let's pray anyway. Father, I, I thank you that, uh, for the opportunity to be up here before the congregation. What a blessing to stand before them and to feel uh, supported and encouraged. I pray that every word that's spoken would be true from your word and that not a, an utterance would come out that would be over personal pride or would be um, not true. Bless us in our time this morning. Uh, help us to continue worshiping you. In Christ's name, amen. Continuing in our study of Matthew, uh, this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 23. That's your hint. That's where you open your Bible there. There'll be three sections in our message this morning. First, we'll take a very quick drone's eye view of chapters 21 and 22. And remember the interactions between Jesus, who is the good shepherd, and the, and the Jewish leaders who were supposed to be shepherds. Second, we'll examine verses 1 through 12 in Matthew 23 and try to understand what Jesus was telling the disciples about these leaders. And then third, uh, we'll make some observations from our passage. I had Melody read over things yesterday, and she said, there's a lot of observations there. Can you cut it down? I had seven. I said, what were you thinking? Two? <laughs> we'll compromise. We'll see what that means. Would you please stand with me and follow along as I read Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's true that I might have a habit of taking us to Yosemite National Park when I get to preach. So not to disappoint those expecting this, let's begin there. I began backpacking in Yosemite in the mid-1970s, and by the late 70s, backpacking magazines, as well as the National Park System, regularly warned of the scourge of Girardia, a parasite that sickened people with stomach and bowel issues that was contracted by drinking contaminated water. It could stay with you for weeks. 
The problem was that people or animals would step in contaminated feces and then walk into the water. The problem was almost always where there was slow moving or standing water. It was another hot day, hot August day in Yosemite. Uh, and that morning we planned to hike from Little Yosemite Valley to Half Dome. Little Yosemite Valley is a backpacker's ca uh, campground about seven miles from the valley floor. You had to backpack to get to it. We went from 6,000 feet in elevation that morning to 9,000 feet at the top of Half Dome. And the trip was about four miles in one direction. It wasn't the most difficult hike that I'd been on, but we found ourselves short on water and it was hot. On our return leg of this journey, we ran out of water. It was hot and we still had a few miles to go. Thankfully, someone on the trail had informed us of a spring down the trail. That was encouraging. Imagine being on this grueling hike, sweating and very thirsty. You think of a cold spring, cold spring water quenching your thirst. A short while later, we arrive at the spring and the news isn't good. Park rangers took the extraordinary step to place a sign near the spring, warning of contamination. The spring had been corrupted by Girardia. Although it looked fine, we could not drink from it. It might quench our thirst for a moment, but in a week, we would have great regrets. This cold spring water was not what it appeared. It was corrupt. This morning, we'll look at the words of Jesus to see what makes a leader corrupt. Just as a footnote, and to give credit, I relied much on the works of John Piper, John MacArthur, J.C. Ryle, and Pastor Rob Rayburn. We're going to take a drone's eye view of Matthew 21 and 22. We'll just quickly note the section, give a brief comment, and then have a takeaway. You can follow along in your Bible if you want. Uh, it's probably marked out there the same as mine. Our drone begins overhead of Jesus, riding on a donkey, entering Jer Jerusalem on a beast of burden. Kings didn't ride on beasts of burdens. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. Here's a key phrase. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Here's the king of the Jews. And he rides in on a donkey. Next, we see Jesus entering into the temple and he begins throwing out the money changers and turning over the tables in the courtyard. And then he goes on to heal the blind and the lame. Here's a key phrase. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were annoyed, maybe angry. Next, Jesus curses the fruitless tree. The next morning, as they were returning to the city, Jesus was hungry and went over to the fig tree and found nothing on it, but only leaves. This is where Jesus cursed the tree. Seems like an extraordinary step. When we talked about this in life group, one of our members shared about their fig tree 
and told us that the fruit actually comes on before the leaves. So when you see the leaves, you expect ripe fruit. Let me ask an important question. What good is a fruit tree without fruit? Here's the takeaway. Jesus' actions here have symbolic importance, signifying this hypocrisy of all who have the appearance that they may be bearing fruit, but in fact, they don't. Next, Jesus spoke directly to the chief priests and leaders. The chief priests challenged Jesus' authority and asked him where he gets his authority. Well, Jesus turned the table on them and said, you first. Where did John get his authority? Jesus asked them this question because they would not accept John's message, which, uh, because it pointed to Jesus as Messiah. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus stood up to the Pharisees in a way that no others had. And don't forget, this was just after calling them trees without fruit. Next, there's a couple of parables. Two sons were told to go to work in the vineyard. One son says no, but changes his mind and works. And the other says he'll work, but did not. Jesus refers to the first son as the tax collectors and the prostitutes those that are looked down upon in Jewish society. The parable relates to accepting the message of John. And Jesus reveals that the tax collectors and the prostitutes believe John's message. And there were those standing next to Jesus, the leaders who Jesus referred to as the second son, the ones who knew the scriptures, but who did not believe John. Then, there was the parable of the tenants. The master planted a vineyard and leased it and sent his servants to get his fruit. First, they beat the servants. And then when the, when the master sent his son, they killed his son. Here's a key thought. Jesus said to them, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. There's that fruits thing again. There, you might note verse 21, 45. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. Chapter 22. I want to look at one more section, and that's the wedding feast. The invitations went out for the wedding uh, for the wedding of the king's son, and no one would come. So the invitations were sent out to as many as you find, and many came, both good and bad. But the passage focuses in on one who came to the wedding but did not wear the wedding garments that the king provided. The, the king provided a clean garment for all to wear. This, gore, this guest wore his own garment before the king and offended the king. I want to I jump way back to, to, to Genesis and the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they tried to cover themselves. But God rejected their coverings and provided them with coverings made from animals. 
Adam and Eve's coverings were not acceptable. But through the shedding of blood of those animals, the skins were sufficient. This man at the wedding reception expected that his own works were sufficient, that on his own he was righteous. And so he wore his own garment rather than what the king provided. Here the Pharisees are confronted by Jesus about their self-righteous attitudes. They were the one who came to the wedding in their own righteousness. So to summarize, these leaders who are supposed to be the shepherds for Israel are far from it. Jesus referred to them as trees without fruit, lower than tax collectors and prostitutes, murderers, self-righteous, not one that we would call a good shepherd. Let's move on to chapter 23. J.C. Ryle is a favorite author of mine and he writes about chapter 23. It is the most remarkable in the four gospels. It contains the last words which the Lord Jesus ever spoke within the walls of the temple. Those last words consist of a withering exposure of the corruption of the scribes and Pharisees and a sharp rebuke of their doctrine and practices. Daniel, you want to go ahead? From, uh, from, from Ryle, knowing full well that his time on earth was drawing to a close, he no longer keeps back his opinion of the leading teachers of the Jews, knowing that he would soon leave his followers alone. Like sheep among wolves, he warns them plainly against the false shepherds by whom they were surrounded. Chapter three is his last message in the temple, but... It wasn't his last act, last act in the temple. Uh, Matthew 23, 1 through 12, corrupt leaders will explore this passage and examine the actions of the scribes and Pharisees and make the case that they are corrupt because of the things they do and don't do. What are those things? Let's find out. Corrupt leaders lack authenticity, they lack integrity, they lack spirituality, and they lack humility. Let's begin by pointing out in verse 1, we see Jesus speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. Now to point one, the Pharisees and scribes lack authenticity. They're not what they appear to be. They want to make it look as if they are the appoint, they are appointed to their position by God. But they have not been, nor have they been affirmed by the people. In verse 2, the ESV has the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. New American Standard Bible translates this: the scribes and Pharisees place themselves on Moses' seat. We have these teachers who have taken an imaginary authority, the seat of Moses, which they claimed for themselves. There was a legitimate sense in which the priests and Levites had authority to decide matters of the law. Deuteronomy 17 tells us that. But the scribes and the Pharisees had gone beyond any legitimate authority and were adding human traditions to the word of God. 
So they act as if God has placed them in the position of authority. But in reality, they placed themselves in it. They lack authenticity, making themselves to be something they really aren't. They do have training in interpreting the law. So if they say something about the law of Moses, it's okay to listen. But they don't have authority to make God's law. When they add to God's law, you don't listen to them. They make themselves out to be good shepherds. What good shepherd would overload their animals to the point of collapsing? This is what the Pharisees have done with their rules. They have added to the law of Moses. It's as if they said, here are 400 ways to go to hell, but none for grace and, for, and forgiveness. None about redemption. Point two. Corrupt leaders lack integrity. They're not honest. We read in verse three, they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they're not willing to move them with their finger. These men are not honest with the people. They have no integrity. They make the people think something is important, but then they don't do it themselves. They're hypocrites. When a carpenter is building a, st a structure, the integrity of the materials is critical. If a beam is designed to withstand a, th a certain load, and if, it can't, uh, and if it can't carry that load, it lacks structural integrity, and the building will collapse at some point. One of my neighbors has built several sheds on his property. They've been there about 20 years. They built several sheds on his property for their animals and all the ones he built have collapsed. The most recent one he built fell this winter. I suspect he'll build another shed this summer and in a few years, it too will collapse. When he builds them, he uses material that do not have the integrity needed for the snow that we get in Ellensburg about once every 10 years because his materials lack integrity. It's just a matter of time before the next shed collapses. I can see it now in life group tomorrow night. People are going to go out to the back porch and look for my neighbor and look to see if there are fallen sheds. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites six times in the remainder of chapter 23. Point three. Corrupt leaders lack spirituality. They mistake the spiritual things of God, the, the God, things God says and do them for show. The things they do were done to draw attention to themselves. Verse five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. I want to jump to Romans 12. And, and uh, let me suggest you do the same here. We'll be quick. Romans 12, 1. I'm reading out of the ESV. I want to jump to Romans 12, 1 and use a passage to help us understand spirituality as, as it's being used here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Are we supposed to take our bodies living and sacrifice our bodies? Of course not. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that take all of life and, and give it as part of our worship to God. It's, it's a spiritual thing. It's not a legal thing. It's not a legalistic thing. Paul's not... Uh, now I've got to find my spot here. Um, now, in the same way, we need to look at what Moses told the people back in Deuteronomy. We'll jump to, to Deuteronomy 6 now. Um, phylacteries are little boxes with scriptures put into them. Sometime around 400 BC, the Jewish leaders began this practice of taking the phylacteries and placing them on their heads. And they would walk around this way. This habit had men make their boxes bigger and bigger in an attempt to get others to see them as more spiritual. This was never the intent of these passages. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This, this is what this passage means here. You shall, uh, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The passage is a spiritual act, just like Romans 12. It's not a way to bring attention to yourself. It shouldn't be just a way to parade their virtue. You shall teach and talk about them as if they were a sign on your hand and a front lip between your eyes. The Pharisees took something spiritual and made it a legalistic act. They made it an act that was for show and brought attention to themselves. Corrupt leaders lack spirituality. Fourth, corrupt leaders lack humility. The problem in this fourth section is not the use of titles. It's the pride and the pretense that Jesus is condemning. But you're not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you're all brothers, and, and, and call no man your father on earth. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor in Christ. There's a few uh, verses down here uh, that actually are listed on the bottom of your, your note page. And if you uh, would like to look those up later, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to need to forego the reading of the next passage for the sake of time. I have them listed at the bottom of the page. They take these titles and try to take God's place with them. It's not that we can't be teachers because we see Paul repeatedly speak of teachers or instructors in the church. And he even refers to himself as the Corinthians father in 1 Corinthians 4. 
Jesus isn't condemning the practice of showing respect. 1 Thessalonians 5 and and, and 1 Timothy 5 exhort believers to show, show respect. The issue Jesus is making is that these men are taking for oneself what belongs to God. Earlier, we saw the Pharisees condemned because they placed themselves in the seat of Moses. But here, Jesus is forbidding anyone to bring honor to themselves as the source rather than God. Do not take for yourself what belongs to God. Do not use titles or positions in, a, in, in the way the Pharisees did, in a spirit that wrongly exalted leaders and reinforced human pride. The desire of the Pharisees was to receive honor and to be called master. The desire of the Christian must be to do good and to give himself and all that he has to the service of others. Finally, those we we need to follow will be marked by humility. Daniel, you can go ahead and change the slide. Uh, Verse 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What a striking contrast. We'll close this section with a quote, another quote from J.C. Ryle, and then move on to a few observations. We see that there's no grace which should distinguish the Christian so much as humility. We see there is no grace which should distinguish the Christian so much as humility. He that would be great in the eyes of Christ must aim at a totally different mark from that of the Pharisees. His aim must be not so much to rule as to serve the church. Uh, Both the example of Jesus and the writing of Peter where he tells us to be clothed with humility, says this, 1 Peter 5. uh, Quoting Ryle, no grace is so beautiful, however much despised by the world. No grace is such an evidence of saving faith and true conversion to God. No grace is so often commended by our Lord. Of all his sayings, hardly any is so often repeated as that which concludes the passage we have now read. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We've been talking about the contrast to the corrupt leader. Humility in serving others distinguish one as a pure leader. It'd be interesting sometime to take a look what guidance scripture has for us on leaders. So in the first two sections, we search scripture regarding corrupt and pure leaders. And now we're making observations about the text. As I said earlier, I originally had seven. Melody suggested two. She really is the boss in the house, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how we do. Observation one. Let's begin with this. 
Let's say you're still in high school. And so you ask, I'm in high school. Why is this important to me? Good question. And I'm glad you asked. For those who see yourself in some position of leadership in the future, there certainly are takeaways about corrupt leaders here for us. But there are also important things for our growth as Christians and as a leader. By the way, it's hard for me to imagine that you will not be in some position of leadership in the future. Young ladies and young men, I'd encourage you to make this part of your regular prayer. Ask God to work in your life and prepare you for serving him and others as a leader. A starting point might be to ask God to help you see ways in which you are not authentic. If your parents made a point of helping you to be a person of integrity, they didn't let you lie, then at some point thanking them would be appropriate. Just a side comment, um, our boys could do a lot of things and end up with sitting down or a nice counsel or other things along this, these lines. But if they lied, if we saw within them a heart of lying, the rod of reproof was quick. We did not want lies to dwell within their heart. Hugs and tears always came afterwards, but no, no, that's not what God expects of us. <clears throat> Look for things in scripture that are to be spiritual and made the, make them a spiritual act and ask God to help you have a life reflecting those things. Seek after a pure heart, a humble heart, and seek to be a servant of Christ and of others and to look for others. Look for others who pursue these things. Be friends with them. Work alongside them. Work under them. Find the pure leaders. Be a pure leader. Uh, the next observation, I guess, it's, I guess it's more of a question. What about the Pharisees? As I've been reading and studying this, I thought to myself, if one of these Pharisees were to repent... Would they be saved? This is a starkly, this message that Jesus is giving is a starkly different message from that that we're used to hearing from Jesus. What changed? Was Jesus simply condemning all Pharisees or just the corrupt ones? Were there no leaders who believed Jesus? What if the Pharisees turned his heart to Jesus even while being confronted? You might remember in John chapter three, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and they talk about being born again. And there's a little bit, even a little bit of scolding to this leader, this teacher of the law. Um, you don't know these things. So Jesus scolds Nicodemus. First Nicodemus 
comes when no other Pharisees would be out and about or seeing him, and he gets scolded. Next, we see Nicodemus in John chapter 7. And this time, we see Nicodemus defending Jesus to the Pharisees. And what about Nicodemus? Finally, in John 19, Nicodemus is the one who purchased the spices for his burial. And also Nicodemus was the one with, with, alongside Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who was wrapping Jesus' body. It wasn't the Pharisees. It was the corrupt Pharisees that Jesus was condemning. No one is beyond the grace of God. Observation four, a couple of thoughts you might want to explore in life group. Can Christians have pride? I think, I think we kind of talk about that in which pride is okay. Okay, I'll leave it at that. How about, is there a bad humility Is there a false humility? Again, take this one up in life group. Jason, I'm giving you some hints for life group here, but they have time also, so you better be ready. Um, Jesus really is brutal to the Pharisees in chapter 23. What happened to the Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount? What changed? And we already asked this, but here it is again. What does clothed in humility look like? Hint, it's a spiritual thing. Uh, this was the last message of Jesus in the temple, but it wasn't his last act. How does his last act demonstrate him as the good shepherd? Finally, We don't have Pharisees in our church. So do Christians need to worry about these issues? No. Pride isn't an issue in leadership in church anymore. In case you missed it, that was sarcasm. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we must still heed these warnings. Just a few years ago, the largest Christian church in Seattle was destroyed by a corrupt leader. A church with 15,000 attending weekly at several campuses. It had what looked like a thriving ministry. When Melody and the boys and I lived on the west side, I considered attending this church. We had friends who attended. From the outside, I thought it was a great church. Not a good church, but a great church. I would have been sucked in like the others. Remember that spring of water on the path to Half Dome? It looked so inviting, but it was corrupt. There were many red flags that should have been um, notices to the people to look out for. I'm just going to comment on one. This should have been a red flag to everyone at the church. The pastor had created a, a, a leadership and accountability council over himself. 
and his council was made up of important people across the U.S. Men not in his church, but men who were well-known. His pastor placed himself above the people in the church. He wasn't an equal with them, and he wouldn't submit to their counsel. Matthew 23, corrupt leaders. There's more to the story. Pastor Stephen will be uh, declaring the woes over the next couple of weeks. And uh, I think that will help to, to bring better closure for us. Pray for the elders, pray for the leaders, pray for the deacons, pray for Sunday school teachers, pray for Boy Scouts and the young men who are learning to be leaders. Pray for the leader of singing. They're leaders. What's their heart? Pray as the elders take on a plan to develop leaders in our church. Bob's been pushing this and working on this with us for a couple of years. Bob, who's, by the way, is our new chairman of the Council of Elders. Um, Pray that we would have pure hearts, that we would develop pure hearts. Would you stand and pray with me, please? Father, Scripture is is good. It shows us important things for us. Here it shows us areas to avoid, and it shows us the way to live. May we be more like Christ, coming to serve, coming, humbling himself, uh, rather than being served. Thank you for the time that we had here this morning, for the remainder of the service, in Christ's name and for his kingdom. Amen.